This is the Krillcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Andrew. And uh, if you're watching this, this is technically a premiere of a previously recorded episode. Yes. Um, it may be claiming to be live. I don't know exactly how we're going to set this up yet, but it's not. So <laughs> we probably will be in the chat discussing things with people, but we will not be answering audience questions as part of the video. If yes, that makes sense. Sadly. Anyways, this is our printed and pressed for a brand new book that just came out less than uh, less than two weeks ago. On the 18th. <clears throat> we got it on the 18th. So about eight or nine days, maybe 10 days before you've watched this. Um, <clears throat> or before this is out, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the book is called The Fourth Turning is Here. And if you remember, we actually uh, reviewed the previous book, which was from 1997, called The Fourth Turning. I'm actually going to pull up that video. Go watch that one, too, because I think it'll be valuable for you if you're interested in the book, because there's going to be a lot of stuff that we may or may not talk about today because we already talked about it. But. Well, well, there'll be some, you know, compare and contrast with what our takes were probably on that a little bit. So. For sure. But what was the reason we wanted to do this book? Because it's brand new. It's and we brand new. Because we had previously I mean, read the other one. It's because we really like the other one, and we're definitely in the fourth turning. So, <laughs> depending on depending on uh, when you start it, when you finish it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, fine. If you are prior to twenty thirty three, according to this book, odds are you are in the fourth turning still. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's just put that on the. You know, we got about a decade. If people are still watching this a decade from now color me impressed all right so so this is our previous stream for anybody that wants to watch it it is the fourth turning by william strauss and neil howe yeah um <clears throat> i've updated it to include authors names in the titles now so those weren't there before but they are there now so if anybody's interested to go watch this go watch this first or after this whichever you have two hours of us discussing the timeline theories yeah. of N neil howe and william and strauss. hating on the silent generation because why not <laughs> Yeah, you can see in the <laughs> comment section here with this. Wait, where is the comment section? Somebody yeah, did not changed like it to be. You have to click like on something. Nope, it's down okay. here. Apparently, we can't see them. But anyways, there's three okay. comments down here. Uh, they weren't very happy with our commentary on the silent for some reason. Even though this person that was commenting was not a most, silent gen. most likely Gen Z. Anyways. <laughs> So the, the fourth turning, it was a book that was recommended by a lot of various uh, famous people. And I mean, it, it gains uh, popularity throughout time because it kind of makes predictions about further unraveling. Of, and it's uh, a popular prediction book, too. It's not, yeah. like, a, it's not like some obscure thing. Uh, I think one of the main things, and he goes into this a little bit in the beginning. He talks about well, it like he uses like a royal You forgot something. Huh? You forgot something before we get into the book. Uh, this one is only written by Neil Howe. That's what I was getting ready to say. Oh, okay. I was going to say he gets into it right in the beginning. He talks about the use of the royal we when he talks about yes. we did this, we did that. He gives a lot of credit to his buddy, his co-author of the previous book. His deceased co-author. Mr. William Strauss, pour one out for this man. I think there was definitely a lack of back and forth when writing this book that clearly was there for the previous one. And mm -hmm. I think that does kind of, uh, it's to the detriment of the content. I, uh, okay, just to start this off, I agree that 
you can tell that he lacks that second opinion a little bit. Um, the back and forth critical perspective, because he's a lot more direct in this mm. on certain things that it was, he was a little bit, there was a little bit more, um, I don't know. I'm trying a little more reserved on certain aspects in the previous book, but at the same time, more fleshed out. This book felt less formal. Yes. No, that's for sure. One. Less formal. I felt like so, if there is any type of uh, political or cultural bias, it exists more in this book than in the previous one. And that's probably my main criticism of the way he writes. But he also gives you a heck of a lot more backstory it's on their theory. It's hard, though, Chris. you got to remember, too, that they're writing that in the era of um you know bill clinton bush the uh differences between the two parties were a bit more narrow at that time like even democrats were saying the era of big government is gone <laughs> like that that's a very different world than the world we currently live in with the divide here so Anyway, so as far as the backstory goes, obviously, if you want to get more information on this, these authors, their books, we did one other video, Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe. It's clear that the writing is similar but different in the new one. And mm -hmm. some of some things changed, not much. And he did give a lot more a lot more predictions, I will say, in this book than in the previous one. Although the predictions from the last one, I think were better than the predictions in this one. Well, I think they had more. Um, they had more to work with time-wise. The third turning wasn't over yet. True. And then the f whole fourth turning was still to occur. So, I think um, I think they had a lot more wiggle room to make predictions. And he's trying to say how the next decade is going to go in this one. So there's not a lot. You know, there's a much smaller time frame to discuss. Yeah. So what? let's go into, like, what is what the content. Like, I'm not going to – I don't want to go, go – Go to the table of contents real quick. Just, just... I don't want to go section by section with this one. No, I, I but... want to summarize it a little bit. Yeah. If you can, Is there a good way to just pull up the – No, the table of contents doesn't – you got this – is, this is the table of contents. It doesn't okay, so um... – He also has, like, 100 pages of notes and sources, yes. which is good because you can always go back and find those. I, I do appreciate a good research book where they actually have their – sources and references mm -hmm. in the back so okay let's let's go through we just... can start, why don't we go part by part the first part is actually yes. the chapter before and he basically kind of summarizes what this book is going to be um, mm -hmm. what it is what it isn't what's what the content's going to look like you know pour one out for what bill strauss or william strauss depending on how close you are with the man um, <laughs> but that's kind of the the preface the mm -hmm. the chapter one is the preface essentially mm -hmm. And then he gets into the seasons of history. And I think actually part one is where this book shines. Uh, part one is because really, it really lays out about, right? everything. If you read part one, you don't really need to read. You really don't need to read the 
the last first book, book yeah the fourth turning the, yeah. the part one is like a rehash and like a, a very, it's a refined like, rehash of book one it's a deep dive too it's a very, yeah. very good deep dive he expands it in good ways um in the history that i think anyone could appreciate the um he he expands it too though when you get down to chapter five of that complexity anomalies in global history i thought that's when that he talks was... about like the civil war and whatnot yeah he, he just talks about how its um impact on global history has been too with uh the uh, synchronizing of all of the saculum yeah and i i i really appreciated how much time he spent on this this first part because at first i was like oh really we're gonna rehash this again <laughs> well and the first like, two chapters are a bit rough the i mean chapter two chapter three are a bit rough to reread after, after we just read, read it, the other one after i read it three times the yeah first time. basically um <laughs> yes. if, if we hadn't just read the fourth turning a week uh, over a week ago <laughs> it wouldn't have been as like oh, crap Difficult. but if you're reading this for the first time it's going to be great if you're just if you just decided to skip rereading the fourth turning and just decide to pick this up you'll be happy to have done that now i will say but if you have not read the fourth turning part one is a very strong opening yes, to this book it is, it is it's got a lot of information but even if you even if you have read the fourth turning just not recently yeah it's a very it's strong a opening. <laughs> it's been a little while since you read the fourth turning. Yeah, yes. part one is, but we literally just reread it. <laughs> literally just did that. Uh, anyways, once you get through that part where he breaks down, honestly, this is really, really well written. It, it's clear that he has refined his thought process on this whole situation. Mm -hmm. That is the seasons of history. Mm -hmm. So this next part is the climax of winter. And one of the things I really liked in this section was, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in this section he kind of goes through the history of like what they call the fourth turnings. All of like, them. Yeah, he goes through all of them. All of them in history. I think mm -hmm. he even spends some time talking about the Roman Empire at some point in there too. Uh, he talks about the British, uh, the British crisis Empire as too, well. Yeah. yeah. But I think he does spend some time talking about the Roman the, Empire. The Roman one thinking. was earlier. It's in the beginning. Oh, okay. When Anyways. he's explaining the saculum and stuff. So then he gets into the millennial crisis. And mm -hmm. then this is all how you date present day history. This is like, he's talking about where he sees the crisis that leads to a fourth turning, uh, where it could, could potentially climax and turn into something bigger or smaller. He's talking about. He tries to map stuff. out what has happened already and what that means for what's next to occur right and then how are yeah, the iranian proverb here war at the beginning is better than peace at the end <laughs> really is it now <laughs> the um how our society will change and how our lives will change chapters are um basically he's just defining um, based on the past fourth turning crisis uh, events how the general trends will go it's very it's very generic my my favorite part about this is he discusses all the different generations and what they're going to do based on the seasons of history and he says mm -hmm. and, and the boomers won't see it coming and it's like you're a boomer yourself dude like 
Well, he it just it just made me laugh thinking about that. It's like he's here he is making this valiant effort. I'll give him that. It's a valiant effort to guess what things will and what things won't happen. But at the same time, he rec- I think he does recognize to a degree that he is also prone to mis- misjudging or misunderstanding things. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of takes he has in this where I think he has, but we'll save that for later. Yeah. Um in in this though, it is very generic based on the char- of what he knows so far about each generation's typical behavior and what the mood shifts tend to be. So for millennials, he's just like, okay, we're going to really embrace merit and getting things done. That's and teamwork and all of that. There's a lot to do with like marriage and and children and all. He talks about yeah. He talks about how the economy has been really hurting millennials Mm -hmm. to the point where they're putting on hold all of these starting a family and having children life decisions. Um, And it becomes a question of if the crisis actually doesn't happen very soon, what does that really mean for millennials doing those things? I think that's a really big question mark. I also think the idea of moving into a global saculum is very bizarre because if Why anything, is bizarre? I, I would say if anything, most of the global powers have gotten more nationalist populist over the years. I mean, there are definitely some outliers, but I'd say the bulk other than like the European Union. That's not against it, though. That's very much aligned with it. If you looked at how the BLM riots and everything were, all that shit even went into Europe for no reason whatsoever. They were throwing Winston Churchill well, statues in the river. I think, okay, there's, like, I think there's a high probability that the American saculum is having a defining impact on other cultures. If, when you look at it, it make, what he says makes perfect sense. Just like it makes a lot of sense how he points out that basically the only part of the world that's not aligned with it right now based off of the crisis of world war ii is the middle east yeah middle east is definitely not well they're also not not just necessarily the middle east but the islamic world at large is not and he points out that they're like the least connected though 9 11 was them in a um awakening era so they're they're like offsetted with us a little bit by that 50 years yeah i mean i i personally think that the american if if you believe in the saculum that he discusses the rhythm of time i i think there's an and a different aspect well i mean we got to get into that later it's my criticism yeah. with the book is related to we'll, how we'll talk about that part later we can continue down this uh just explaining these he he after this he talks about how our lives will change and he goes through each and every uh generation but in this one including the lost the gis yes silent in this one he actually talks a little bit it's about uh generation of late elders which we kind of talked about in our last video where okay look at how the silent has had such an outsized role so far to even this point even though they're no longer such a large plurality of uh, of um, Congress and the Senate, they still have just as many members as as millennials. Yeah, and, and when the, it comes the to the Senate, never let go either. 
Yeah. They and make up and the I mean, amount. Silent is still the main leading roles, too, when you look at it. Like, majority I think leader. One of the, the most interesting pieces when he's discussing all the different generations mm -hmm. is how quickly the GIs went from the face of America oh, yeah. to disappearing into the villages of Florida. Yes, yes. It was like so quick. And even though they continue to have GI presidents, because, you know, the silent never had one until Joe Biden. Um, right. They were okay with the GIs being cool. the face of the country. They just weren't okay with them being in charge of everything else. We stopped having GI presidents after um, once. If they had like 32 Clinton, years of GI presidents. No, but once, Clint, uh, once Clinton became president, we were done with GIs. And it was all boomers pretty much up until Joe Biden. Yep. And then. Uh, wait, is Obama a boomer? I actually don't no, know. Uh, no, wait. Yes. Yes, he is. I think so. Because I could see him being a, a, a sneaky Gen Xer. No, I believe he was. He's, he's probably no, a boomer. He's, he's boomer. He would. He was a young boomer. He wasn't that much president. different than. He wasn't that much younger than George. Um. Really? He, he looks, looks old. Man. He, he looks he, old still. Not, no, no, no. Uh, Barack doesn't. Barack looks old now. Um, so, but he's born in '61. Does that make him a boomer or a Gen X? He's. Depends on the chart. He was at well, the, he's at the very the edge. I'm he's at, at the, the very chart. edge. I want to see the chart that he has and see where he puts him technically. He Although is he a Gen X boomer, basically. He's a Gen but, X boomer. He's the cusp of... Uh, no, he really is. A, he's like the last year. Um, he might be Gen X, technically. He'd be close. I want to know. Keep going. You, you do your discussion. So, okay. I, he In part too and how our lives will change he goes through all of the different generations he keeps calling uh gen z homelander in this one so if anyone's confused when they see the title homelander that's just gen z um after that part three he just goes into what he sees happening with the news when when the fourth turning is over and he focuses a lot more on it being a successful one he doesn't really opinion. talk about what bad things could happen. He, he kind of avoids the bad. Um, he wants to really extrapolate on the good portions because he's like, hey, we've had, you know, six of these things that were successful. It's a small sample size, but... Oh, no, he does. He's got Brock in the Gen Xers. Okay. So like, technically, we've had a Gen X president. He's, he's at the very edge. He's as, he's as old as a Gen Xer can be. Um, but yeah, he, he really expands on the positives because he's like, okay, it's been that it's been positive all the way up until now for us. So let's be optimistic. And then he has a smaller section in comparison that talks about the bad things that could happen. Technically, we've got our first millennial running for president right now. We do. We do. Is it, uh, what's his name? Vivek? Vivek. Vivek, yeah, Vivek yeah. Ramaswamy, however you pronounce that name. Yeah, I think he's technically the first millennial that's ran for president. Although if Pete Buttigieg, no, runs, Pete I guess Buttigieg is did a he millennial. Run? Yes, he ran. He True. Lost. Okay, so if one of them makes it to the primary, then that would be the first actual candidate. 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 Yeah. yeah. You have to be selected. You can't just run. You know how many people run? A lot. <laughs> a lot. Um, but yeah, so I I actually took this book when I read it, and I was very um. No one can read that, Chris. No one <laughs> can sure? read you, you sticking sure? that. Just find it on the, on the Kindle edition that you purchased. <laughs> um, so, yeah. 
I actually took this book to be very optimistic, just the way I was reading it. Um, I I have a lot of question marks about some of his hot takes in this book, but the overall trend that he wants to prescribe that will occur about basically where millennials are going to embrace merit a lot more. Right. Uh, community merit, uh, getting things done efficiently, uh, a return to more classical architecture in aspects because they want to bring back, you know, the, the, it, effectiveness but also the beauty there's certain things like that which make me very optimistic i can also it's well i also can see parallels to other things too so you can you can kind of see which groups are going to bring about that next realignment he talks about so i think that's where we should go next really is uh i forget what section it is but he talks it's about the climax of winter it would be in climax of winter, Chris. Winter chronology. Our lives will change. The, no, the winter chronology. Oh, chronology. The winter chronology. Yeah, chronology. Okay. Uh, let's find out where he talks about the order of things that happen. Because there's the kickoff event that technically occurs in the third. Or maybe it's not in this. Maybe it's in the millennial crisis. Nope, there it is. Right there. Yeah. So, okay. Basically, this is the arc that can happen. It can happen during every fourth turning you have the um during the prior unraveling so the third turning there is a crisis that foreshadows everything that's about to happen an emergency that temporarily gal galvanizes society so he's 100 percent convinced it's 2008 financial crisis right and then a crisis era begins with a catalyst so something or yeah something well wait no he says the um 9 11 was his uh foreshadowing i thought you mean I, the well there was there was a there was a serious the realignment of this the whole society after 9 11. yeah so it wasn't the cat he was saying that the i'm actually blanking out didn't he say that the um crisis catalyst was actually 2008 yeah he says that the financial crisis was the global financial crisis is what he calls it yeah um, so i got that mixed up for a second there the precursor, the precursor was 11 and then the financial crisis the great recession was the uh first catalyst i, I mean i don't think he's wrong because we've never actually like recovered from the financial crisis we've just continued to kick no. the can down the road we never let it we never let it become resolved it's okay it's wacky because i feel like i feel like um most conflicted here because government was very aligned on how they responded to but the people weren't 2008 <laughs> the people were very polarized on this subject like when you look they back were, oh, hey, it, my didn't goodness. it didn't result in much <clears throat> it was it was still very i don't know man i think the global financial crisis affected people of the age bracket of neil howe more than anybody our age but the the long-term effects of the global financial the way, crisis the way i look at it though the silent generation us. boomers this, okay, the silent generation, boomers, and GIs, right? 
And they, Gen X to a degree. Not even Gen X. Gen X gets screwed in everything. They weren't they're, they're, they weren't political decision makers at this time, really. They still aren't that big. All right. Um, but the people who had actual political power at the time were so aligned and unified in their response to 2008 that it's hard to say that they didn't have a rally around each other moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. The public was kind of pissy but at the same time the public wasn't out there trying to like kill each other uh, you had o- occupy wall street occur and you had the tea party occur but both of those at best are still very much third turning vibe you know what i mean like, as far as protests go they're very much they came off much more like listen though okay hear me out for a second if the if the true global financial crisis, the 08 one, is the um, the turning point, the piece that leads us to the fourth turning, then at least we have the solace that the great champion has to be Ron Paul. <laughs> Probably, but okay, I agree though that that is really the fundamental issue that has to be corrected right now, as far as our crisis going. It's never we've been, never we've never addressed we've never that. dealt with that. And banks are still collapsing. Our debt is out of control. The U.S. dollar really could stop being the reserve currency at any moment. I mean, we're on the cusp of having full governmental control of a, of a central bank digital currency, which is the big government solution to this crisis. I mean, this crisis did not technically start. It did not start with 2008. It started in... 1971 when well, you're about fiat currency and all well that. yes when we eliminated the gold standard and then 2008 was the chance for our country in a third turning to actually address and deal with that issue and and instead, instead they chose to kick the can down the road and make it worse chose for everybody. to kick it down the road and make it way worse for everybody yes um so if you go back to that that previous page though real quick where it talks about the so all right once catalyzed society experiences at least one regeneracy there's usually more than one which reunifies community and re-energizes civic life i mean so in this case he's talking about our first regeneracy being donald trump Mm, or it could be his election he's talking about his election you think so what what else was it I was thinking it was the bailouts, but I guess no, no, no. He his first because when you read it, he he doesn't talk about the response to two thousand and eight. It's true. It's the the very first one is where where people got ridiculously active voting. We've never had better voter turnout apparently than we had the best voter turnout ever than recent. So that's our first one, right? And it becomes a question mark of will we have a second regenerated society moment? Yes or no? We don't need more than one, but right now, if we don't want it to be a civil war, we need a second one. Probably, yeah. Because right now, that first regeneracy was two American sides, neither one really winning out when you think about it. It's still very divided. 
it's not like right, right i mean he was talking about the potential for demagogues like all these various regional leaders yeah it almost reminds me of the book of judges in the bible where you have mm. all these these very very strong characters in charge of different areas and they don't mm -hmm. always agree but they pretty much have totality control over the area that they represent so like if you look at some of the most the most demagoguery examples, I guess that's the right mm -hmm. word. You're you're looking at like a like a Whitmer, a, a Newsom, even to lesser degree a DeSantis or an Abbott. These people are what I would what I would when he says demagogue, those people fit that description in my opinion. I mean, we have a lot of crazies. I'm not gonna lie, but if once once that regenerated society, you know, comes to the okay, we're in a struggle for survival there's eventually a consolidated society moment going towards a climax, a crucial moment that confirms the death of the old order and triumph of the new. And then the climax ends up in a resolution, a triumphant or tragic conclusion that separates winners from losers, resolves the big public questions and establishes the new order. Things that will not be readdressed <laughs> for a very long time. Yeah. If, you believe in the four the four turnings basically see i think i think the the main issue with this whole premise and i'm going to get mm. into this now okay is that even though he rejects the idea of linear time being a factor i think linear mm. time and his theory go hand in hand well okay let's let's take let's take this for a second if Linear time is, it's just, you're talking about progress. He says that the saculum does not exist without linear time. When people adopt linear time and the concept of progress, and they have a benchmark for progress, and they're constantly saying we have to improve, then that right there creates these the saculum. That creates it to begin with. Mm -hmm. So what what one really has to realize is that the saculum is a civilization progress meter. It's like a heartbeat. Yes. Ups it, and downs. It's a heartbeat of, of civilization. And each civilization technically has its own heartbeat. Based on like whatever you want to say. They can so sync up. If they can sync, if they sync up via crisis, but anytime that, so you gotta realize you're always growing or you're shrinking as a as a civilization so as your civilization grows you either grow and then you're successful and you're synced up with the other group or you're if you if you survive i guess is the question mark right if you survive as a civilization the question is do you go from from the roman republic to the roman empire or do you go to from the etruscan empire to destruction yeah and we kind of discussed it previously, um, not not on an episode, but just when we were talking about the book separate privately. It's kind of like you got this linear slope, right? Yep. And the saculum's just bouncing with that as its center point. And, yeah, and eventually, like depending on your progress, the 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 line can go down. You yep. can fall off a cliff. It's like know. it's like okay, but your but your heartbeat is along the line. Yeah, and. When it comes to, let's say, Rome, right? Rome was going up that slope of progress. It reached its peak, basically 12 saculum in. 
and then it crashed like a rock and you no longer talk about the Roman civilization existing. Then you had the barbarians and until you got to the Renaissance and then the beginning of Western civilization. And now Western civilization, all the different parties have managed to basically sync up their saculum through with how World War II ended. So right now, it's now a question of what happens to Western civilization. That That is the greater issue with the saculum. I do think it's, it's an interesting theory as a general study to look at who raised who in generational mm-hmm. speak and how that affects them because like for example i definitely see the idea that gen x was left out as like lone wolves nomads whatever you want to call them and they the amount of you know helicopter parents not so not so much a thing during gen x and also uh how that shapes their parenting because mm-hmm. a lot of times the faults, they are more now the faults of the parents are overcorrected by the children yeah which does in effect generically speaking affect the, the, that generation and their children well and i think it's okay it's clear that the biggest lesson to learn from this book in don't general, be in gen x no 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 in general this okay millennials don't have it much better right now we don't Neither economically gen z, speaking um gen z will have it better because the population is shrinking um the the thing the biggest lesson to learn is that society is bound for a crisis the moment it its composition no longer primarily remembers the last crisis that's you know, that's true you no longer have the same relationship to the lessons learned yeah i mean the people that are alive today you know, the bulk of them had no experience with or the experience they had was after World War II. Okay, like, let's let's just look at it this way. You are a parent, Chris. Mm-hmm. Have your kids touched something that's too hot for them yet to touch oh, and yeah. burnt their fingers? Yep, they learned their lesson. Did they, did they believe you when you said, don't touch that, you'll burn yourself? I'm sure they heard me, but they ignored me. They ignored you because what had they not done? They had not they burnt, themselves. burnt themselves. Yeah. So how are we any different as a, as a collection of generations, right? It's you're only as, as experienced as the oldest people in your society. That's, that's the theory. In well, this. the oldest majority, the oldest majority. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the average age, you're only as experienced as the average age of your Society. So if the average age of society is in their fifties, then then half of your half of society has no idea about World War Two. Basically, yeah. So now, anyways, now I, I will say the the main thing that bothers me is that while yes, there's ebbs and flows to generational theory, the progress line is not always on the way up. Well, it's not. That's that's. And I think that depending on how far down you go away from your linear timeline, the linear timeline starts to go logarithmic or potentially down. Well, I guess there's a question mark there, Chris, because theoretically progress, what is your definition of progress? Because if you go off of technology and just quality of life, right, theoretically, it's never been better 
theoretically like, as far as food security as far as technology and communication as far as health cures out there like, you know procedures that were technically ne it's never been better now if you want to i, I would say if you want to live a healthy life at your own house and never see another human being this is the only age of society that you could ever do that in oh okay i'll put it this way i think there's always progress in the technology aspects of quality of life it's it's never been better as far as that field goes what you're talking about is culture i think there's an ebb and flow aspect to the culture because it's always it's always cycling from a peak of well progress can help though andrew if, if, if society falls off a cliff then you're not going to see progress from that society anymore well okay but i don't think we've ever as long as you're as long as you haven't had a terrible fourth turning outcome right as long as your civilization has survived its challenges technology is always progressing upwards it definitely that, can no it's always progressing upwards <laughs> by definition it has to chris unless you lose technology which you can only really lose in a fourth i don't know crisis. man give me an example of, give me an example of how you lose te technological advancement outside of a fourth turning level crisis uh for example i'll give you the best example of technology prof pro the progress of technology being stunted by stupid things okay no no you just said stunted you said stunted that is different because even though okay you said nuclear even though nuclear has been stunted because our, we lost our our influential gis in power too soon because they were all about building them and then boomers suck all right um <laughs> And silence sucks too. Because of those two, we no longer kept building. But guess what? We kept researching. Look at all of the next gen nuclear reactors that companies are trying to Well, that's to bring just because market. good ideas don't ever die. Yeah, but the technology is, uh, even the technology that those companies are trying to bring to market right now have been experimented on and vetted for the past 50 years. How, none of those companies. Show me are somebody really building ready. one. <laughs> okay we have to wait until after the fourth turning is over for them to be built i i actually wouldn't be surprised if the the crisis that we have to overcome is grid related oh yeah no no okay there's a lot of things chris that are going to cause this i i have a i have a wide range of, of <laughs> feelings about this which make me very optimistic but it, that's what i'm saying technology is always advancing unless your civilization collapses like rome yeah, Rome straight up collapsed. Okay, that's, although that's... The, the the accomplishments of Rome are still, you can still see Roman roads. Some of the like, it's crazy how well, well we that society. We just recently learned how they did their concrete. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Which is amazing technology. Can we please get some roads that actually implement that tech? Well, like, look at that lighthouse of Alexandria. It should be impossible to have to have built that, and that stood yeah. for like thousands of years. I know. So, what you're they talking? Use, they use lead as mortar. Dude. The thing that you're talking about, though, is culture, which makes yeah. you feel like we are regressing and not progressing. Oh, because, we've culturally regressed hardcore. Yeah, but that's because, okay, that's because that's part of the saculum. The saculum itself is the cultural landscape of civilization a long time. So you're constantly oscillating between maximum societal trust 
and minimum <laughs> pure near, bottom near societal, zero, near zero societal, societal trust. trust. Yes. You're constantly, you know, going back and forth because you I realize, mean, we might be, we might be, you know, real, real feel in the third turning, but actually in the fourth turning, kind of like the wind chill factor. Yeah. Okay. Think about, okay. Think about this, Chris, think about this, the, you know, the whole, um, cycle of civilization stuff, the weak men, strong men, that yeah, whole that's thing. literally what I'm talking about. Yeah. But, but you forget the other portion, there's another one and that's where there's the immigration concept of it as well where mm -hmm. everyone wants to come to your country when it's succeeding and prosperous and wealthy they're coming there for the money they're not coming there for the values that's true they're coming there for the economic success and it eventually waters down the cultural aspects of the society the values that created the wealth and success to begin with which means you need a new crisis to realign everyone's values and unite the team to see if it can overcome it. If society overcomes it, you develop, redevelop your values, you realign your values. It's now a homogenous values society, which is how you build a civilization that is prosperous and wealthy. That's, that's what it is, right? So it's, it's interesting because we have not stopped the immigration train at all. <laughs> That's, that's a good point. I mean, obviously, there are some less successful countries than ours. I mean, that exists. That's hey, for sure. I'll say this. All right. I think I think we're at a point now where we can start getting into a little bit of his claims in this book or his hot takes that are sure. a little crazy. He's talking about, like, there's been a decline in immigration. And well, maybe he means a decline in talent coming over with immigration. I don't know, man. All I know is there is no, no, he's talking about as, as though uh, Gen Z is not heavily percentage wise immigrant. I also thought these studies that was really funny. He's like the each of the following phrases have hit highest ever usage rates as of 2019 right wing, left wing, radical racism, authoritarian, repression, inequality, cover up populist. I didn't, I've never heard cover up used, honestly. Angry. You've fight. never heard cover up? Not in like, not in like online or anything. I mean, I've heard it's fake not, news and all this other stuff. Although I'm surprised fake news didn't make this list. Um, it says yeah. shame, conflict, politics, and next civil war. Also, it says the word fascist is the highest use since 1946. Because nobody knows what the definition even means, but that's okay. Well, I mean, he's dictator. saying highest use since whenever, you know? Yeah, so, uh, oppression since 1868. Anyway, but I, I, th I think it's it's it's. I think a lot of these words through over usage have lost meaning. Yeah, no, they have. Um, but what it's kind of like when you expose yourself to like consistent violent movies, you stop like seeing violence. <laughs> desensitized. 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 Uh, but yeah, Chris, his hot take about, you know, lack of immigration, like we've cut down on immigration. Maybe we've had a desire to cut down on immigration. <laughs> we haven't actually but done it yet. Our country has not stopped. Look at how many people are coming across the border daily. Mex like Texas is overrun with illegal immigrants right now along that border. I, I don't see where, okay, look at how many refugees have been resettled here just since the Syrian uh, civil war. And then now with Afghanistan and how that cluster went down, we've 
done nothing but just bring tons of people. Okay, I heard a crazy stat. Fargo. Fargo, South Dakota, is now 8% foreign-born. Hmm. Because they keep resettling Muslim refugees there. I, I think here, here's a there was recently a terrorist attack in Fargo. Can I can I can I finish my thought process? Yeah, yeah. Through this, I, I think there's a there's a point where if you allow too many people of a different culture to join your culture you end up destroying whatever culture was there because the two oh, cultures yeah. may not mix. The assimilation can only happen if they're joining a homogenous society. Well, you need a strong, one of them has to clearly be stronger than the other. So right. if you don't have what you could say is inherently a strong, you don't want to have strong culture. Of, you don't want to have a lot of immigration during the third turning. No, well, if you okay, if you don't have a strong, let's just say it, like a strong culture, dominant, dominant culture, right, where you don't put up with shit. If you don't have that, and you allow your culture to be diluted too much, you're not going to have the manpower to enforce that, like coming to get that consolidation factor into the. There's a uh, reason new, why there were limits on immigration. Yeah, but it's now now think about this. That's just assuming you're just bringing random freaking people over. Now, if you start bringing people with their own culture that is strong, like they strongly believe in that culture, they're not coming here because they believe in your culture. They're not coming here because they want to join yours. They're coming here to escape some other conflict or whatever else. And bring their culture with them. And they bring their culture here. That's not assimilation level culture that's not like that's not them learning lessons from their own culture's failings that's going to be you need to like be ready for that to be a conflict in the future that's not that's not assimilation level stuff that's that is straight out of textbook barbarians coming into rome that that's why rome didn't get to assimilate those barbarian tribes like, let's be honest, those are strong cultures that were like, we don't need to assimilate. You're relying on us to be your military. I mean, there's a reason why the colonial, the colonialists and the Native Americans didn't get along. They, they yeah. were strong cultures. Two strong cultures. Them, neither of them wanted to change to the other. Okay, do you know what caused the the pilgrims up in Plymouth? Because the they, they wanted to take their religion. Oh, you, I think no. Why they no, do you know what? Here. No, do you know what caused the conflict that finally broke the, one of the longest-standing peace treaties between the Pilgrims up in Plymouth and the Native American tribes? Uh, wasn't it because of population? No, it was because too many Native Americans were converting to Christianity, oh, yeah, yeah, and as a result of that, there was pressure on the chief of that group of tribes to stop the torture techniques associated with executions. They, the, the Christian Native Americans that were converting were starting to be like, hey, that's not cool. <laughs> and to preserve their culture, they decided to declare war. Okay, that's where that, that's where that conflict starts from. Not, not the pilgrims betraying them or anything like that. Literally, one group was like, hey, you're dominating our culture right now. Um, we don't like it. And we don't like it. Yes. 
So we either have to declare war to preserve our culture by showing that it's the stronger culture or we're, we're done, right? That, that's, that's the type of world that you end up in down that that's road. why there's and that's really why the, the civil war talk has gone up 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 over the period of the mm-hmm. last couple of years because you do have a very strong faction in the left and a very strong faction in the right neither of which will agree on a solution as of right now and the climax could be it's possible it could be some form of a civil war yeah and it's possible I- I just, I just have to say though, I think it's a huge mess in this book. He does not, he does not talk about immigration as if it's like still a crisis at all. I, I think that it's, it's valid that it could be a crisis, but I think, I think the problem is that it's overshadowed by the right versus left. It is. I'm just saying that it has been. And it's, it's, it's a wedge. It's a wedge issue that nobody seems to be able to solve. Yeah, but it. Uh, I guess my point is it's not necessarily that it is the crisis on its own. It's just mm-hmm. the fact that it's a huge contributor to the outcome is going to be very, it could be very different than you think it is. It could be. It certainly could be. It's, it, it's a, a form of conflict that makes it much harder to consolidate that the culture around one exact value system. The, the funny thing is, is um, a lot of first generation illegal immigrants who eventually gain citizenship, because how else would they vote? But right. um, they start out voting one way. And then the next generation is already voting different. It's kind of funny when you mm-hmm. look at it, because it's like, it's it's interesting. It kind of proves the generational thing. Honestly, it's like, when your parents get over here, they vote one way. And the kids of those parents end up voting a different way. Right. There was there was a um, another one that was kind of odd in this. He took it as a positive. I don't know if I would take it as a positive. He's talking about the uh, number of extended families now in America growing, like kids living, like young adults living with their parents, aka millennials still living with their parents. And I don't know where, where he gets that to be a positive trend. I think um, generational living can be a good thing if it's by choice, and it that's what I'm saying. Everybody. That's what I'm saying. He's acting as if it's by choice, and I think where he lives, there's a lot maybe, more well-off people, and yeah. he probably sees that as a positive. Maybe, maybe he's in a bubble on that because I don't, I don't know of anyone who is doing that where they're like. I actually hey. think he might have misread this though, because I, I saw it as. There's a lot of boomers moving in with their millennial children and becoming like the caretakers of the kids at home. Because I actually have anecdotal experience you, with that. People, I, people I, doing that I because I've seen I've seen a lot of people where the, the boomer parent, especially after the spouse dies, moves in with the kids and helps out mm. with the kids. So I read it differently and but because I think he in the way I read it, because he's talking about at other times millennials having a harder time with economics and not being able to go start their own homes yet they're not there's, having there's the like resources two sides that to I, I think i think half of millennials are struggling with finances and the other half of millennials are doing okay yeah but i i guess my point is i think right now based just anecdotally off of what i'm aware of there are more millennials living at home with their parents with their parents than boomer parents living with their millennial children. 
Well, maybe we just need to look back at the GIs. How many GIs were living with their parents because of the Great Depression and then went off to fight wars and got houses when they came back? Well, that's kind of his point later on in this is that for millennials are at this crossroads right now where they're kind of getting to an awkward, we're kind of getting to an awkward age where if the crisis doesn't happen and change the economic landscape for millennials, they're, they're waiting because they're overall more responsible about starting families. I also think it's interesting he didn't shift the bounds of Gen X and instead decided to extend millennials. Because I, I actually feel like Gen X might have been a longer generation than he gave credit to it. Uh, I don't know. I think... Because I feel like a lot of values of the Gen X family fit me better than the millennial well, okay, I if he was to extend it, it would only be so far into the into the eighties. That's true. And you gotta remember if you're first wave millennial, you're going to align more with the Gen Xers inherently by being first wave. Because it's a it's a it's a gradient. <laughs> it's a gradient. So the most millennial is gonna be whoever's in the middle. Yeah. Right, that's peak millennials, right? <laughs> you're not much older than me, Chris. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember what your birth year is, to be honest. <laughs> anyway, um, I can say quite comfortably, though, that uh, if there is a crisis, I'm going to be on the higher end of this spectrum. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, um, the way it's going, though, it's a very awkward age bracket right now for millennials and it's interesting because he's saying he can't even define when gen z starts yet no he can't because, well that's because you, you're the youngest people to experience the crisis yeah affects when he ends his age bracket right so it's it's an awkward it's an it's an awkward one did you see i, I actually i actually don't think this is this is where he lost me on the generational theory is because okay. i i really think that the ups and downs will exist no matter what, mm -hmm. regardless of a generational consistency. Like, for example, the Civil War still happened. I think it was just a shorter up and down. Yeah. Rather than a generational thing. Like, I think the when the conflict happens affects the recovery of society. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with generations. I think I think historically you can make some guesses on patterns. Okay, I'll, I don't I'm think willing, there's any science to. I'm willing to, to compromise with you on this. I'm willing to compromise with you on this. I would say that the hero generation and the artist generation are a little bit sus. Okay, <laughs> so what it really comes down to is you have two generations that really matter. Well, three technically. You'll have the previous heroes, right? You'll have the whatever the artist generation. No, whatever artist generation grew up right behind them who didn't have to do any of the fighting, who right. just kind of tags along. Then you have post -crisis the, then you have the post-crisis children who get raised ideologically. Based, based off on of, like the climax of the crisis. Based on how the heroes, whatever the heroes had to do, right? The heroes, whatever they fought against, whatever they was ingrained in them because of the conflict and the crisis is now ideologically 
ingrained in those kids that are prophets. And then after them, you have the artists raising the nomads, right? Who are just built. They don't protect them at all because artists suck as parents. <laughs> all right. Um, the key here is that if, let's look at the American Revolution, right? Would you say that was a very ideologically heavy revolution? No. <laughs> yes. Would you say that revolting against a king and creating one of the first republics in forever was a very radical and uh, something that would create a lot of ideological uh, teachings in a next prophet generation to make them very radical? Are you hinting that we're going to read the Federalist Papers? Because I, I, I think that's probably something you're hinting at here. Probably at some point. Um, but the thing is, could you imagine a more radical prophet generation than those raised by those who fought in the American Revolution? No, probably not. Probably not. All right. Now... And they got help from the, the revolution of the French. Right. And you're always going to have... Everybody forgets that the French were such a big part of the American Revolution. Right. And then you're always going to have nomads that are radical, right? They're just radical, go get their bag of money, <laughs> do whatever they feel like doing. They don't care. They're swashbuckling pirates, out, uh, country pirates cowboys, bandits. They're, they're whatever they want to do actively to go make money and seek adventure. Well, if they're only as radical as the prophets really allow them to be. So the less the less handrails that they put in front of them, the more radical they can be. Yeah, so the more radical your prophet's about saying the other side's evil and like that's against our honor and we have to stop this person, you're just egging on your nomads to get into the conflict. You know what I'm saying? Like sure. You're leading up conflict here. And then so if your prophets aren't as radical, maybe, just maybe, that's why you have a guaranteed four cycles versus three. Because you only need three to have a crisis. Yeah. Right? You only need the three three generations for a, for a crisis. Because nomads can be both heroes and generals. They can be, depending on They can be at all, right? Is it Was Lincoln technically a nomad? No, Lincoln's a prophet. Oh, okay. That makes sense. He was very ideological. Yes. So my, my humble opinion is that the reason for the anomaly is just how radical the prophet generation is. Which part of the anomalies now is, okay, less radical because the fear of nuclear war is something that will make you less radical. Yeah. Makes you want to get along more. But also, our silent generation has hung on to power for so long. So boomers are kind of still following along with whatever the rulemaking is from the silent. Our nomads They're... were radical culturally, but not politically. Yes. Yes. They liked their heavy violence, their grunge metal, their mm -hmm. you know nirvana, smells like teen spirit. They, but they... they're never really radical politically. They're, no, always they a like... little, they're always a little late to take power. Nomads are always a little late to take power, and they're because they're also late to get their money yeah, by that's large, true. right? So they're never feeling too comfortable in life 
to really focus on things other than whatever is right ahead of them. But look at look at where it is right now, though. Our silent generation has kind of kept our boomers in check from because our boomers are kind. Our boomers are kind of uh, they're kind of radical. Look at Lindsey Graham over there. That, that mother effer has never seen a war. He doesn't want to jump in and start throwing grenades. Could you imagine that Lindsey dude Graham is, that having dude is, more influence earlier? Just, I don't think anybody would disagree that he is just a terrible human being. Dude, but can you imagine him having more influence right now? <laughs> like, goodness. He is he is a bomb throwing crazy person, but that's I don't know. Does is what I'm saying make sense to you? <sighs> or do you think because you don't you think it's bullcrap altogether or what? I I I think that the flows and ebbs the the ebbs and flows of time exist. I think that. The, you can probably label generations and get away with it. I think that there's no hard science to prove that this 80-year cycle will automatically end in some kind of a conflict or crisis. I think it's better for society that that happens. I think it tends to be better for society to have that happen. It's but always even, for Chris. He always he does bring it back at the end. It's just like if, it, if the crisis itself is so little, then society may learn nothing. Yeah. Well, okay, here's a question that I had when I was reading it. So we have these financial crises, right? And they've only gotten worse and more frequent the more we've done to try to control the economy. So we create the Federal Reserve in, 19, uh, in 1913, right? And ever since then, we've had more free, we've had more and worse market cycles. Okay. And then we eventually get off the gold standard, which has made things worse. So my question is, would our economy simply be better if nothing was involved? If you could take away money printing from government, and you could take away the ability to just influence the economy by like picking winners and losers the way they have been with bailouts and stuff. Would our economy really have the same market cycles? Would there, would there be great recessions, great depressions, or would it just be company A has failed because it ran out of money and no one was super levered up on it because they there's no tool for them to actually be levering up with with bullcrap debt i personally think that transferring wealth via the government is a crime and yeah. it affect, and it straight up changes the progress and the ability to society to adapt and change but he talks about chaotic time in here right yeah. so if we had a chaotic money and a chaotic economy no one's no one's really saying okay we're bailing this group out we're trying to control this oh no we can't allow this sector to go out of business so let's pump in money because it's inefficient and we can't just let it adapt we have to keep it as is 
if we did that, would we get rid of the cyclum of the economy, the cycle of the economy? I think we would. I think I think there's a case to be made that you could get rid of it. I think that the cycle of money is based on ideas and innovations. And basically, when one idea has run its course, the money associated with that idea goes away. And by maintaining that business, despite the innovation of it running its course, we wind up with a dead company floating. A zombie company. Yeah. And unless they, because you can always if, look at Apple. Apple should have died multiple times. They managed to pull it together and get. They past saved that. themselves, yeah. You know, they fired the founder and brought him back, and all that other fun stuff. But there are ways to innovate your way out of bankruptcy, out of financial crisis, and it makes companies like like that's a good, actually, kind of proven company. And I think you could apply the saculum of business to a much shorter time span. Mm-hmm. So, okay, when when you look at, this is the part that confuses me a little bit. Um, it doesn't confuse me, but it's one of those things where obviously- I'll give them credit that generationally, we all like media that's similar to a previous generation of media. Obviously we're, obviously, we're going to have another terrible economic crisis again. You have because, to, or else the, well, the economy will crash. No, in our current one, it's going to crash anyway. But my point is, he he likes to talk about 2008 being that whole, like, it's the financial crisis. I mean, it was bad, but they, they screwed it up. But tell me, does, does 2008 really come off as bad as the Great Depression? Or is it more? It could have been. But does it, yeah, but given the response to it, given the response to it, does it not come off more like the recessions of World of World War One era around after World War One that he talks about? Because that's, that's the, when he's talking about the past crises, right? He brings up recessions in World War One where, oh, we recovered. Well, mm-hmm. our stock market recovered very well. And when, when we're talking about the recession and when he's looking back, it's all about the stock market that's all that the the older generation really cared about anyway (laughs) because of their retirement funds and index funds and all of that he talks about the government bonds a lot too yeah 2008 though is much more like that than the great depression we didn't have five ten years of just non-stop terrible economy right we we had a rally (laughs) the stock market came back without any other crisis aspects being involved. Whereas with the great depression, it was constantly going under. They couldn't keep it. Go- they couldn't get it to go up no matter what they did pumping money in. I think, I think the problem, like I, this is something I wasn't planning to get into, but I think, yeah. I think, I think the great depression was all built, built on a lie. Well, like, a lot of the Great Depression problems is the New Deal policies. They were terrible. It was between the the um, stock market. The stock market is a confidence thing. Like if you have, if you lack confidence in a country, then all the stocks tank together. The the thing, one of the issues too is bank runs were another problem. Well, yeah, if you could get rid of banks, which there are ways, then you Dunk wouldn't the have Federal Reserve. You wouldn't have an issue, but. 
I, I'm, no. with, I'm with Ron Paul on this one. Dump the Federal Reserve. End it. <laughs> Get rid of Did it. Did you? Uh, there's okay. Here's an interesting stat that he brought up in this book too. In 2020, Trump lost the national vote by four percent, but he won in 83 percent of all U.S. counties, which was an unprecedented feat for any losing candidate. Yeah. And then there's mention about how since uh, 2008, there's been a huge wealth transfer from red counties to blue counties. So pr- prior to 2008, Democrats... I mean, we essentially got Roman city-states in this country. Yeah. But that's because of that's where all the money went. When it got printed, it would go straight to the cities. So you had an inflationary, a targeted inflationary action against rural America and smaller town America that just decimated them in favor of just giving that wealth to the cities. So and, and in turn, they gave their money to things like Amazon where their stuff was delivered right to their door. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, we haven't touched on it yet, but he's delusional as shit in this book about Ukraine. <laughs> His hot take about Ukraine, like the only group that's united it's just where I'm really confused about his thing. Um, who is he talking about? Is he talking about government? Because, yeah, government's united on the response, but the public isn't at all. The, the public is not at all aligned. I, I yeah. think he's right. The uniparty thing exists. But the thing is, he he's forgetting that in Congress, what makes up the largest portion of Congress right now? Um, Boomers. Mm-hmm. I think when you see millennials and Gen X take over Congress, the the chances of people agreeing on the Ukraine war are like zero. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, he's just like, no. There's also he brings up that typically civil wars don't actually have a geographical divide, but COVID has also made it where there is more of a geographical divide in this country too. So, so it'll be it would be interesting if there was a civil war. I'll say that much. I'll say, okay, I think, I think the greatest threat right now with our crisis, because he's based on his analysis alone and what I see, there's, there's a huge threat because we've had that regeneracy thing right now. And that has created two very polarizing groups. And one of those groups seems to me to want conflict just with the way they've persecuted different groups how they've gone out of their way to persecute right so there's no reason to indict trump not really no i i i I don't see i mean there's no i think there's i think there's i think there's more reasons on the books in the mainstream media to indict the sitting president than there is for Trump. And I don't think either of them should be indicted right now. So My point is one group or the way they treated protesters on January 6th, like all protesters, not even the people who went, not even just the people who went inside the building. I, I think if, I think if you treat the opposing side, the way that the current administration has, there's no longer dialogue on the table. Okay, let's look at how 
the Trump administration handled all of the George Floyd protests, all of the attacks. Like they attacked the White House. They there stayed out. Over there. A, there was over a hundred people, a hundred uh, Secret Service agents on uh, who got hurt. And that many were injured. Okay, defending the White House from protesters. All right, they burnt down a church across the street. <laughs> It was pretty so, bad. You know, my point is, how many people went to jail for that? I don't know, honestly. I, how, I can't was there a public show trial for any of those people? No, I don't believe no. so. Was it was it basically a form of amnesty just granted out? Kind of, as far as public perception the, this, is. Let, let, let's just get to the heart of that. There, this country is historically a country of protest. Yes. And if you do not allow protest to go on peacefully, well, then the the result of that will be a very violent protest. Yes. My, my comment, though, is that you had one reaction, right, which was relatively lenient, if, if we're honest. It's relatively lenient. And then you had another that unleashed a persecution campaign to try to discredit anyone they could bring charges against anyone they could still trying to bring charges to put a former president in jail which for, is unprecedented for some pretty minor shit let's just be honest they're reaching for almost every single thing they're going after him on as far as like a legitimate reason how many people have documents that were classified documents in almost everyone who has been in government. So let's just, whatever, fine. Go after this one. Well, I mean, completely ignore it, it, what happened with Hillary Clinton or the Biden's fact, The fact that they had, they had found confidential documents in Biden's garage was hilarious. Yeah. So my point <laughs> is there's this double standard right now, which I, it's not an accident. It's not an accident because when you read this book and you see all of the traits that Neil Howe lays out for where the millennial generation is going as they combat the crisis, right? Being community-driven, merit, um, seeking a merit-based society, seeking to be as efficient as possible and getting things done and accomplished. Where is our government? Where is our government efficient? Where it's not. has, the, where has the, the, the crisis? The crisis might be millennials taking the government back. Yeah, where where like, has, through voting? I'm not saying like go. Well, yeah, no. There's I have some I have some more hot takes on this. Okay, but where where's the efficiency? Where's the merit? Do you, do you hear the current party in charge talking about merit ever, or is it all about identity and collecting stamps? Okay. Oh, we got this person stamp. Oh, we got this person. Check that box. Check that box. It's not about having the right person for the job anymore. It's none of these traits. It's not about teamwork. It's not about anything. The The Democrat Party is so focused on the individual and every little piece that makes you so unique. There's nothing that brings people together for a singular community marching towards an objective with values at all. So if you read neil howe's prediction uh, prediction right and you compare it well it makes perfect sense why a certain party is being so to uh, thumb on the scales and belligerent right now because 
they're they're doing everything, everything that the brown shirts, the red, uh, the red guard, everything of a color revolution, right? It's it, it's the last gasp of the struggle thing. against progress. Well, it's it's a it's every playbook of color revolution. So they're seek while they have power, they are itching for any reason to have the conflict now because they will never have more power than they have right now. And you have to thank the internet for that. You really do have to thank the internet because never before has it been so easy to show people all the crazy stuff that this new band, whatever you want to call the modern day Red Guard is, you will never, you've never had the ability to see them be crazy in another city across the country where they're gaining power or something and intimidating people. You've never had that ability to warn everyone across society adequately to be able to form a resistance to it. That's why the re- the brown shirts were able to get Hitler in power with only like what, 20, 25% of the vote of the vote support. That's I how they were. I, able- I don't honestly know. They had a very minor plurality and no one took them seriously as crazy because you didn't have the same level of communication. Mao's group, I don't know. Well, okay, let's be honest. Mao's group would have lost. They would have lost the civil war to the nationalists, AKA Taiwan, if it wasn't for the conflict with with the, the Japanese, where the nationalists did the vast majority of the fighting against the Japanese and the communists sat back and waited for that to be over so they could then attack the nationalists again. So when you when you see the current party, it should not shock you that they are seeking conflict, conflict with Russia, conflict whoever, right? Or even an internal conflict, because right now they are at the apex of their political strength. And given everything that Howe has said about where the next trend is, if we have one more regeneracy right okay uh, rfk jr rfk jr is out there talking he's not he's he's kind of bringing it back as far as on the left goes wouldn't you agree what do you mean by bringing it back he's bringing it back into alignment with more american values oh most I, um, yeah if he if he were to win if he were to win the majority of the Democrat vote somehow, I don't know how he's going to do it because the mainstream media is way against him right now. But if he mm-hmm. were to win that, I think your values could come back to more central American values. And I, okay, I have to say, dude, that this is the one thing that actually made me really optimistic about the book. In the book, when I'm reading about the, this fourth turning crisis and Neil's predictions for what millennials gut instinct of what they actually want is i'm i'm disheartened by his his kind of like wishing for big government moves again like that that part disheartens yeah, no, me. I, I don't it's, like the idea he's, clear, he's clearly a boomer here where he's talking about oh you know surveillance state type stuff and he's okay with it and whatever bro you can you you do you i'm not looking forward to that but Hmm. when you try to pick a community can you think of a community out there that is actually built like a group and i uh 
a movement that's actually building communities that's looking at merit-based concepts that's doing all of that can you can you think of one merit-based it's looking to bring back merit that's looking to bring back um no like a movement Um, an actual movement that's looking into merit and community and whatever like what's building community what's bringing consensus together out there right now you got me andrew give me an answer if you know one okay bitcoin oh there there is a community there there is the bitcoin community even okay right now you got rfk jr saying in a um twitter spaces today that if he was president he would actually he wants to make sure that uh like the internet that bitcoin is able to actually grow and uh, and actually explore its potential in this country to the point where he would say no taxes on it for like a certain time frame okay that that's one crazy thing and then on the republican side you got Ron DeSantis over there, who's anti uh, central bank digital currency and pro Bitcoin. You got Vivek Ramaswamy, who's pro Bitcoin over there as well. So, right now, you actually have two parties with the more rational candidates who aren't trying to go to war with each other agreeing on something. Plus, I think the most unifying person out there, and the media will never admit it, is probably RFK. He's well, he has most. some crazy. No, he has some crazy. I'm shit, not. Man. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm saying that if you wanted people on both sides to agree to a specific candidate, he will bring probably, about one of the crises that you're concerned about. I'm not saying you're wrong. He could potentially affect the grid very seriously because of his anti-nuclear stances. He, but not just that. He is so pro wind and solar. It's terrible. Um, I'm. I'm trying to. Bring, would, I think he would learn his lesson very quickly. Maybe. But when when you look at it though, right? The Bitcoin community. Okay, I'm wearing I'm wearing a you know real uh, Bedford shirt right now because that's a soccer club in England where so- they're building it around the Bitcoin community. It's okay. it's no like I'm wearing it right now because it's it's I wanted to talk about communities like you got stuff like that. You got a, a baseball team in Australia that is identifying with the Bitcoin community. You got um, Bitcoin Park in Nashville, which is this one meetup space. You got Nash, even um, Austin, Texas has a scene right now. And there's all those conferences. I can't think of another community that's really bringing together um, conferences of people that just all backgrounds to try to agree on things. All right. So I think if there's one group that's actually bringing that together, it's Bitcoin, the Bitcoin community. I think you've also got, um, and then religion. I was gonna say, I think you got some <laughs> religious movements that are doing similar things. But re- the religious movements, even like when it comes to the religious movements, there's still the uh, what is give on to Caesar, what is Caesar's. Yeah. So you need a movement outside of that to wrap up the other aspects. You know. You you can't do it with just i mean unless the country is based on a religion then it's one thing but generally speaking i agree with you on that well here's here's one thing too just to bring up bitcoin again <laughs> like doing that do you, okay okay think about this he's tying there needs to be a transfer of wealth 
he talks heavily about how there's going to need to be a transfer of wealth from all the old people. How are you going to get that transfer of wealth in the most efficient way possible? What would be better than adopting a hard money solution as and something that young people are adopting way faster than old people, something that Gen Xers and their desire to take risky bets, okay, and be on the frontier of new movements, what other thing besides Bitcoin is naturally attracting Gen Xers and millennials and at the same time scaring away the silent and boomers that need to lose out on the next financial system. Are you getting to social security or are you talking about Bitcoin? It's all of it, man. It's all of it. Cause if you, if you switch from the dollar to Bitcoin financial, who cares about social security? <laughs> who cares? They're getting worthless dollars. You've left the dollar behind. That's my point. It's like, what transfers wealth better than changing the medium of exchange completely and utterly a whole new mo like monetary system? I wonder if they would, they would use like, cause if you're going to go to a digital currency, then you got to have a, a digital gold, which would be Bitcoin. But at the same time, you could still have a gold standard for physical cash. You could. You could do a con like a combination system. That way you're not withheld to one specific value one denomination that but that oh this is the thing this is the this is the revolutionary movement against the during the financial crisis right it's how will the boomers and the other old folks the remaining clinger on silence how will they keep just call them clingons clinger ons hold out holdouts for death um how will they convince Gen X and millennials who know they will benefit not, not at all from social security or all of this bailout money? How do, they, how do they expect to convince them to stay in the dollar if there is an alternative? Right. So that by default, there's going to be a movement that defunds social security, that defunds all of those social programs that don't benefit Gen X or millennials. I would tend to agree. And you're incentivized to leave the dollar system for Bitcoin the second you recognize that. So if, if there's a bad enough crisis, economic crisis, I can't think of anything else, man. I understand what you're saying. I, I, I think that the financial crises have to culminate with something. And if it's Bitcoin, well, then, Andrew, you've set your bets correctly. And if it's not, then you'll still have Bitcoin. Okay, I'll say this. I'll say this. The most optimistic take you could have right now is that our crisis will be a the financial lack of a crisis. No, it will be a financial revolution and a political revolution in the sense of who wins elections going forward. Because. Do, do you really see a war going well? Not with our current makeup of our culture, no. Right. So unless there's a, a good regeneracy, I mean, <laughs> it, 
it, if if we don't go to war, I don't know. It, okay, here's one of those things. War with China right now, thousand times worse than it needed to be, because we gave up on our own principles and outsourced our own economic prosperity to them. We gave them a manufacturing base. You're talking about Taiwan? No. China, well, yes, yes. Taiwan, the issue of Taiwan and if there's going to be a conflict over it. But think about the fact that if we had not helped them uplift themselves economically through our ability to just allow them to, you know, enter the world trade trade organization and have a competitive advantage with super cheap labor and take our outsourced factories, which we allowed to just go to China. Would would the CCP not be facing a collapse very similar to the Soviet Union right now? Potentially. I mean, we don't know because we didn't try it. Exactly. We gave Wait them prosperity. Ah, he did. I forgot he had Oppenheimer in here. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, Chris. What do you, What do you think the crisis will be? If you had to guess at this uh, rate, I think there might be a, a crisis of. I think the crisis is globalization. It's a pretty lame outcome, though. I'm just saying. I think the crisis is globalization. I think the idea that you sacrifice your country and culture for the globalization effort is the crisis and i'm personally unwilling to do it how is that i don't know how that's fought like honestly that's a legit question it's a a cultural fight you have to win the culture i mean you yeah i think the culture wars is the crisis and we have to win if the cul- okay, if the culture wars are the crisis, it would align with the fact that gender differences, right? The 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 gap between gender roles has, despite millennials apparently f- favoring gender roles <laughs> by f- more than previous generations, but right now the the differences be- just with the trans topics and all of that has made gender it's coming to a head like this this whole discussion on yeah culturally how we accept or don't accept these things has come to a head and it has to end with something i think it's part of it that's where that's where i say you're okay maybe when you say we have the culture war as the crisis i think that aligns with me saying that our biggest threat is a color revolution Um, but that, that's my personal opinion. Unless we actually go to war, then that could be the crisis. But I, I think right now the culture war is the war and it has to be won. Yeah. No, culture war, color revolution, same concept, <laughs> same concept. No, it's like, that's, that, what could you think of as what, what would be the better way to describe how else do people describe, um, Mao's takeover than the cultural, their cultural revolution, right? Right. with his red guard and all of that crap. So I think you're right. That's probably where we're at right now, unless something dramatic realigns everything. 
So you gotta hope something realigns everything. Something. Something. Um, the last thing that we need to talk about though is rating the book. Oof. I give it a, if it was just the first half, I'd give it probably a four and a half, but I think his lengthy discussion that I disagree with quite a few points on is it not brings it down to a four. What's your biggest disagreement? Actually, uh, just, just disagreement. Some, the, the basis of, I think it's his, his boomer opinions on the millennials and the Gen Z. I think he's right that the Gen Z is very conformist, but I think he's wrong about how they're conforming. I think he's right about a lot of things and wrong about a lot how, of things. How do you think he was wrong about their conformity? I don't know. You're asking me a broad question when my brain is kind of sinking right now. I, I, I think in general, what we're seeing is the last... Well, I, think right, I think the silent have to go away before any of his opinions can become valid or invalid. That's f fair. I think the problem is, well, what do you count as millennial right now? We've already discussed this, Andrew. No, I no, no, no. What do you currently, because you said, because you're, cause you're I, I judging think, that he's wrong about the conformity of millennials. So I'm asking, I mean, I mean uh, conformity Gen of Gen Z. Z. So I'm asking, where do you define that line of... I think, I think that the latest you could put Gen Z starting is the advent of smartphones and the earliest they could start is the advent of the internet, early two thousands. I would say smartphones. I wouldn't but, go with the internet and because the internet was around before then, Chris. No, no. I mean the advent of like everybody, social media, you mean yeah, social media, like I, five do YouTube, all. but YouTube was a different place before social media. I, I would, because Facebook didn't change until it was, uh, social media did not change with the algorithm concept until it became a phone thing. That's when they really started going down the addiction concept because they had a way to keep you addicted. That was and they could like track what you're doing innocent. with an yeah. app versus so a browser. The earliest you could say that like the, if you wanted to go that route, you would have to go with when, uh, my, when Facebook finally did a mobile app, which was like 2011, 2012. Was that the first time? Yeah. Yeah, the 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 movement onto smartphone apps and that was much closer to like 2010 to 2012. That was the window. Yeah. So okay, it's, I, I guess I guess I would say millennials are probably somewhere between the mid 80s and the mid 90s is the start frame. So maybe 1990 would be a good spot, or 1985. Just like the song 1985. Anyways, um, if you wanted to move Gen X by like, if you wanted to move Gen X by five years, just because of how different like mobile games and all of that stuff was growing up uh, after that, like in the 90s, then sure. But I think Gen um, X has to. Well, when was the Game Boy released? Which Game Boy? The first game, the Game Boy, the the Game Boy. Was that eighty nine? Uh, one second. Because I think mobile, like I think that, in my opinion, is when Gen X ends. Is when mobile, when the first mobile game system comes out. Because there's it was a very there's eighty nine. There's a huge defining moment when you could take a piece of technology with you on the go for portable yeah. gaming. So if you wanted to go with the Game Boy, that was 89. So you probably would say a couple of years before that, just because you, before. you weren't. No, 85 would be perfect because you weren't getting the Game Boy at four. No. 
So, you know, just like if you were to go a little bit before that, it's about right as far as because the totally game Boy changed changed the way uh, the social convention of kids playing because now yeah. instead of always having to go out and do like kids sports or like skating or this this and that now people had a portable form of entertainment and then the next revolution in social interactions would be the smartphone. you know that would if we okay if you were to say that gen x went to 80 84 right around 84 85 because that puts then, it about a 25 year then you put you start making 25 year cycles for every generation at that point i would kind of agree with that because that would if you added 25 years to that that would then bring you to 2010 which is when the smartphone everything everywhere social media started to that doesn't actually take you to 2010 that takes you to yeah you're right no 2010 you're right you're i can right. do math chris i miss i misjudged <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, I, that's my opinion, and and I don't want to delve too deep into that. But I would say the millennial generation pretty much ends around the smartphone. Okay, so if we if we said that, then Gen Z is only like thirteen. Yeah, right now, because I think the bleeding edge, the youngest millennials, oldest Gen Zers, are your TikTok kids and those kinds of things, and that still is like, I think that's still kind of millennial. No, it's still millennial, man. Because yeah. millennials are very self-centered. They want to be, they want, um, not, not, okay, let me rephrase it. Maybe not self-centered, but they Egotistical. want to, they want to be somebody. They want, they want to be accepted into they the community. They want to be somebody. Yeah. They want, they want to be leaders FOMO. of a movement. FOMO, FOMO, man, FOMO. They want to be leaders of a movement. They want to be the next fad, the next 15 minutes of fame. The, the hero, hero, the hero in them wants the approval and, uh, of, of their older counterparts. You want to be recognized by Gen X. You want to be recognized oh. by the boomers. Okay, so does that does that when when we say that Gen Z right now would would at the oldest be about thirteen? Does does that change who you're thinking about for not being conformist? That's my question mark. Yeah, a little bit. Because that does not change who I viewed as conformist at all. Because when I saw young teenagers during the pandemic, they were all very masked, like even without any adults around. Yeah, so that's probably I, true. I took them as very compliant during the pandemic. And I'm over here, I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> so it's like, where's the rebellion? I don't see shit. So. Well, Gen, Gen X and millennials are the last rebellious of the generations for this cycle, according to Neil Howe's book. I'm a little disappointed. Well, I'm a little disappointed that he doesn't expand on he obviously doesn't care about this because he doesn't care about technology at all at all he doesn't think he has any impact but i'm very disappointed in the fact that he doesn't go into the impact of social media or um medications because he t he does bring it up briefly, Chris. Yeah. Just about the um, SSRIs and birth control. I and think we'll he, we'll get. I think so. That's actually a good conversation for when we do the your brain on birth control book. Yes. So we'll we'll postpone that portion until that book because that one goes into a lot of really good detail. I'm Although just I wouldn't saying, mind doing a book on SSRIs either. That'd be I'm, interesting. I'm just saying I'm a little disappointed that. Well, he's clearly a boom. He clearly has a boomer perspective. Boomers don't see technology. They see technology as a time suck, but they don't see it as culturally impactful as we do. Yeah. 
Which, yeah, that, that's just the way it is. I know. I'm saying though that I'm disappointed that he's a boomer in this in that one topic about technology, just because I don't think he truly factors in the risks that it had, like how it has changed the dynamic of his archetypes. All right, because- so let me let me do this then. I would say this book gets a four because although he seems to view himself as a writer outside of the saculum writing about the saculum he's still writing it as a boomer yeah i wouldn't give this one a five i gave the other one a five i'll give this one a four i'll give this one a four i'm willing to give it a four because it it's It's still really well written it's very well written it does a very good job of taking what was in the good in the last book and expanding on it but I, and I'm happy with. But I think, fact- but I think it kind of fails at some of his predictions. But I guess we'll find out. Okay, I'll make I'll make this point real quick. This is my this is the reason it has to be a four. It could probably be a little bit lower. It's it's no different than when someone does a movie, Chris, about um, you know, like think of Back to the Future movies, right? Where the first one is going back in time, so it's all it all works, right? It's a timeless. It's a timeless. I was messing with you. Oh, okay. I was saying, I was saying, wow, Chris. I was saying, though, that when they go back in time, it's timeless, right? It's a really good it's easy portrayal to because things that happened already. It already happened, right? When you make predictions about the future, you're no longer timeless because yeah. the further you get into the future, the more the flaws in what you wrote in your story come to be (laughs) because things you said would happen don't happen. That's why it was almost the predictions they made in the last book were better because they were far more open-ended. No, you got to remember the predictions they had in the last book weren't really necessarily predictions. It was moves. It was like, here's here's things that can happen. Here's things that can happen. Yeah. Anyways. Given the moods, this could happen. Given the moods that we know will have have happened in the past, this is how we think you should prepare. It was, I would almost be willing to recommend the last book more than this one. It's but still if you better. read this one, you don't have to. Read I think the last book. book was better at not predicting, but preparing you. This book, the, this book is not a book that will prepare you for what's coming necessarily. I think the last yes, book would. yeah, the uh, the. The fourth turning book is by far just a good, these are lessons for your life. And I think that book is timeless in a sense. Obviously it loses value the more saculums happen afterwards. Just the title itself is less timeless. The fourth turning is here. Yeah. It's a different book that kind of feels like it's trying to be the same book. The first, yeah, the first half of this book will always be good. The second half is Time questionable. Will tell. Yeah. Anyway, so we both gave it a four. And yep. uh, is there anything else we need to cover on this book? Um, I don't think so. There was there was a couple different things he added in there about like free will and content uh type stuff, but. I think that's better for people to read for their own. I, I don't want to give too much away what's yeah. the content of the book. Well, I think just to say that he has stuff about free will and contingency, seasonal history. 
has a complex system, cycle length, anomalies, generations in global history, which I think that section, which we haven't really talked a lot about, would be really, everyone's going to find that pretty interesting because that's one of the parts that he actually excels in, I thought, when he mm -hmm. delves into it. So just as not a spoiler, that right there would be, is pretty good. All right. Well, if there's nothing else for you, Andrew, then we can call it right there. As always, I'm Chris. And I'm Andrew. And uh, next week on The Printed Impressed, we'll be discussing a book called... Return of the Gods. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I had to double check in my mind which one was next. Yeah. That'll be an interesting, probably removed from YouTube video. As Probably. <laughs> so we'll see you on, on the next. next. Printed, impressed, curl cast, whatever you want to call it. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.